Heavenly Father, we ask today that you would soften our hearts and open our eyes so that we might see your Son again more clearly. Specifically, Lord, I ask today that you would show us the hope that we have in him. Amen. Good morning. Glad to be here. Kevin told me that y'all were used to sermons that ran close to an hour and a half and that you'd be disappointed if I went any lower than that. Is that true? Just kidding. He did ask me, though, if I would begin sort of a short little period of time the next few weeks that y'all will be spending in Colossians. The lectionary readings for the New Testament over the next four weeks are out of Colossians. And today we get the beginning of Colossians. And he asked me if I would sort of open that door for y'all. And so I'm excited to begin this time because Colossians is one of those books that was very, very special to me. It was one of those books that transformed me when I was 18 or 19 years old. It began to grab a hold of me, and I heard it taught on about three or four times over the course of three or four years when I was fairly young. And it became one of those books where I saw Jesus more clearly. And so I'm glad to actually begin this book with you. It's a book that really, if you were to say, what's Colossians about? It's about Jesus. And I know in a certain sense you can say that about all of the Bible. You've probably heard the joke about the kid who, speaking to the Sunday school teacher, hears the question, what's brown and furry and lives in a tree? And the child looks at the Sunday school teacher and says, that sure sounds like a squirrel, but I know the answer is supposed to be Jesus. (laughs) The whole Bible is about Jesus. He is the thing that all of it revolves around. He is the one that all of it revolves around. But there's some books that are not just implicitly about him. They're explicitly about him. And Colossians is one of those books. It's a chance to see Jesus in there. And so for that reason, I'm excited to start with it. Colossae was a church that Paul didn't plant. He actually was in Ephesus, which is 125 miles or so away And it was in Ephesus that, and we're constructing this based on hints that he gives us in the text. It's not explicit, but we think that what happened is that while he was in Ephesus and he was there a couple of years, he told the gospel to a man named Epaphras or Epaphras. And we heard him mention in verse 7 of the reading today. And what it looks like happened is that this man, Epaphras, took the gospel and went 125 miles to this town called Colossae. And there he planted a church that was under Paul's authority. And we don't think that Paul ever visited the church itself. He might have. The New Testament's silent on that. But he does mention in the letter that there are people at that church that he's never seen face to face. And so it's likely that he hadn't actually visited this place. But because the church was planted by one of his disciples, it was a church under his authority. And this letter is written with his full authority as apostle to a church that he's never visited. We know that he was very close with some of the people in that church, and no doubt some of the people there had visited him while he was in Ephesus. And we know that some of the people there had visited him and had taken care of him, had been kind to him, and he'd instructed them in the scriptures. And at the end of the letter, he actually sends back a couple of those people to this town with his message to them. And Colossae seems to have been a pretty happy church, a pretty healthy church. There's lots of the letters of the New Testament that reveal ugliness going on within churches. Corinthians is the most notorious of this, a church with lots of sin and struggle. Colossae on the whole seems to be one of those places where the people actually got along with each other. 
and where the gospel was actually pretty clear and where people actually were doing what they ought to have been doing. And yet Paul writes this letter because there's something dark looming on the horizon because he's addressing at Colossae a false teaching that's beginning to emerge there and it's a false teaching that he believes is going to lead the church lead the church astray. There's somebody in Colossae who's beginning to add to the gospel. And there's a great deal of debate over exactly what this was, the technical category. What heresy was it? We don't know. The name's not given. But from what Paul says, there's a fair amount of consensus about the content of the teaching, even if we don't know what school this person represented. Because it seems like there was a group of people or a single person in Colossae who were heavily influenced by this sort of strange Jewish mysticism and were beginning to teach the people at Colossae that they needed something else other than Jesus or in addition to Jesus. And the something else that they're talking about is strange to our ears. But I think it's something we still need to listen to and think about. Because this teaching seems to have been that the people needed, in addition to what they got in Jesus, these sort of mystical experiences. The people needed this sort of visions of heaven, encounters with angels, secret knowledge. They talk about angel worship. They talk about appeasing spiritual powers, about visions and going to heaven in the spirit, strange sorts of things. And that was coupled together with the fact that the people needed a set of ascetic experiences. You know, ascetic, this sort of form of self-denial, extreme fasting, being very careful to keep religious holidays just correctly, keep the Sabbath perfectly, being somebody who denied yourself in all pleasure. This is the teaching that seems to be at Colossae that Paul's addressing, this combination of weird mystical experiences, visions of heaven and angels combined with extreme asceticism, fasting, self-denial. And Paul looks at this combination of teaching and he's actually afraid. He's thankful for this church, and this is a good church, a healthy church, but he's afraid because he sees the potential for this church to go astray. And so Paul looks at this church, and he says, I think that y'all are trying to add to Jesus. I think that you're adding to the gospel. You're forgetting what Jesus has already done for you, and you're forgetting who you are in Jesus. When you add these things, you're clouding the gospel and you're losing sight of the beauty of who Jesus is. And this will lead you astray. And so he writes him a letter. And the gist of the letter is Jesus is everything. Don't add anything to him. The gist of the letter is Jesus has already done everything for you. You don't need to add to that. The gist of the letter is anything that you add to the gospel has the chance of clouding it and polluting it and making you forget it. Remember that Jesus is everything. So for us today, I think it's worth actually stopping for a second and asking the question, why do we need to hear this? Because after all, none of us in this room are likely to be influenced by a strange Jewish mysticism that talks about visions of angels. None of us are likely to even go down the path of a stream asceticism where we say, I need to start denying myself by not eating anything ever by not drinking anything fun, I'm going to keep the Sabbath perfectly. This is the way that I'm going to be pleasing to God. None of us 
will likely think that the way that we need to become pleasing to God is by getting secret knowledge that can only be gotten through dreams of heaven. These things won't likely influence us. And yet, even though it's not those things, we, like the Colossians, are faced with the temptation to add something to Jesus. And so we need to hear this letter. We, like the Colossians, are tempted to think that what Jesus has done for us is not enough. And so as we come to this letter, I actually ask you all, and this is the question that I've been asking myself, not so much, do you have anything to do with this weird Jewish mysticism? Because we all know the answer that's no. But the question that I have for you all and the question that I had for myself as I began to look at this book again this week is where are you tempted to add to Jesus? Where are you tempted to think that what he's done for you is not enough? Where are you tempted to forget who you are in Jesus? Where in your life are you tempted to try to add to the gospel, to try to prove that you're enough? Where are you tempted to cloud the gospel by thinking you need something more than it? Another way of asking this question is just to say simply, do you actually think that Jesus is sufficient? If you actually were left with nothing but Jesus, would that actually be enough? Is he sufficient? Is he sufficient for you? Is he sufficient for me? Those are good questions for us to face, even if sometimes they're difficult. The testimony of the New Testament is almost extravagant in its claims that Jesus is enough. The testimony of the New Testament is one of those things we need to hear it every now and then again. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that those who have Christ Jesus have everything. Those who have Christ Jesus have everything. Do we really believe that way? In Ephesians, Paul says those who have Christ Jesus have already been seated in the heavenly places. Already been seated in the heavenly places. Sort of puts a new perspective on troubles at work. He says in Ephesians, those who are in Christ Jesus have already been given every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. They're already yours. Your name's already on them. You can't go get them because they've already been written down with your name on top. In Romans, Paul says, there is literally nothing that you can be condemned for. Nothing. There's nothing that you can be condemned for. In Romans, he also says that in your baptism, you were buried into Jesus' death and your old self was done away with. Your old self was done away with. In Galatians, he says that our old lives have been crucified with Christ and it's quite literally dead. And the life that's now coursing through you is the very life of Jesus. Consider that. The life that you feel this morning as you awoke, had your breakfast and coffee and came to church, is the very life of Jesus. Your old self has been crucified with Christ. The New Testament is extravagant in its claims. It's extravagant in its claims that there is absolutely nothing that you can add to what Jesus has done because he has already done everything. The New Testament is extravagant in its claims that you can add nothing to what Jesus has done because he's already actually given you everything. He's freed you from everything. There is nothing that you can add to the gospel. Paul makes these sort of claims throughout Colossians. And yet, while I was wrestling with the question, 
Where are we tempted to add to Jesus, to think that Jesus is not enough, to think that Jesus is not sufficient? It seemed to me that the almost better question is where are we not tempted to add to Jesus? Where are we not tempted to think that Jesus is sufficient? Because those claims of the New Testament are so extravagant, and sometimes our experience feels so far away from this, that we begin to believe that perhaps it's not enough after all. Perhaps we need to add something to it. After all, the Bible says all of the spiritual blessings are already yours, already yours. And we say, sure doesn't feel like it. And so we begin to doubt in very subtle ways whether it's actually true. The Bible explains to us why we don't experience the extravagant claims. It says that we've only been given a foretaste of what's ultimately true. That there's something left to come in the end of times. That those blessings that already have your name on them, they've been tasted by you. But we haven't experienced them fully. We still walk by faith, not by sight. We're still longing for the fullness that's to come. And so even though those things are true, our lives here and now don't always line up with what we know is true. And so because of that mismatch between what we know is true and what we experience here, we begin to doubt that Jesus is, after all, enough because we don't always experience him as enough. And so we begin to run to a thousand other places to sort of fill in the gaps, just like the Colossians. And so we think in order to be happy and good as a parent that our kids have to be successful. Courtney and I laugh at each other and at ourselves about the fact that when sports season rolls around, a lot of our heart is revealed because it's pretty hard to see your kid fail at something. It's pretty hard for your kid not to be the best. We think that our kids need to be successful to be a good parent. We think that we need success at work or a good reputation to be worth anything. We think that we need money in the bank to feel secure. The New Testament says, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. But we think we need to acquire and get and save so that we can have security. We need our friends to affirm us, our family to express the affirmation for us, to know that we're loved, in spite of the fact that the testimony is that God's love is absolutely secure. We need to be listened to, to feel like our voice counts, that people value us. We need pleasure, good food and drink, nice clothing, a good house, to feel happy, to feel comfortable. In other words, even if in our minds we acknowledge that Jesus is enough, We live a lot of our lives as if he's not, as if we need to get a lot more in order to be secure or to be happy. We're similar to the Colossians, not because we're tempted by some weird, ascetical, mystical version of Christianity. We're similar to the Colossians because we think that we need something in addition to Jesus. We need something to add to him to be secure, to be happy. Like the Colossians, we harbor this sort of hidden belief that if we would only do life just right, it would all work out. Can't be the only one here who feels that temptation. If only I would do life just right, it would all work out. So similar to theirs, if you keep the Sabbath perfectly and you fast perfectly, things will work out for you. Maybe it's not the same way of doing life perfectly, but it's the same temptation. You know, like the Colossians, it's interesting to me that most of the things that we try to add to Jesus aren't actually bad things. They're actually good things. The Colossians, there was a weird bit about them being tempted to worship angels. That's a bad thing. But the rest of the stuff, Sabbath keeping, fasting, 
all those sort of things, those can be spiritual disciplines that lead us to Christ. Those aren't necessarily bad things. And you and I are not generally tempted by adding bad things to Jesus. You know, wanting to be a good parent and thinking that our worth comes in being a really good parent, it's actually a really good thing to be a really good parent. Wanting success at work and for people to care about us and notice us, those are actually good things. Wanting to be loved and valued or even to have pleasure, these are actually all good things. But the point is that even those good things, when we pursue them as additions to Jesus, when we pursue them adding to the gospel, can begin to chip away at the gospel and become bad things. The best of things can become bad things when the reason we pursue them is wrong. Consider the fact that we could love somebody out of freedom, love somebody because we've been loved, love somebody because we've been shown kindness, and it's a beautiful thing. But we could also love somebody out of a desperate desire to be approved by God. And that love then begins to eat away at the gospel and begins to teach us something that's false. We can enjoy food as a good gift from God and rejoice in thanksgiving over this gift that he's given us. But the enjoyment of food can quickly turn to idolatry, to gluttony, something where we're only happy if we have what we want. We could fast to be free of distractions and desires so that we can pray in earnestness. But we can also fast to prove that we're a good Christian, to prove that we're good enough for God. The point is that good things can become bad. The things that we add to Jesus are rarely the really bad things. But even those good things, when we add them to Jesus and when we do them for the wrong reasons, even those good things can become bad because we begin to believe that Jesus isn't enough. It's fairly unlikely that someone's going to show up in this church and begin to explicitly teach that the gospel's not enough. Doubt that's going to happen here. Someone's not going to stand up and say, look, unless you see visions of heaven, you're not in the in crowd. Unless you fast perfectly, you're not making it to heaven. It's unlikely that that's going to happen. But we can pretty easily slip into the same pattern of adding something to the gospel, of thinking that I'm not enough unless I do this, or my life's not worth it unless I achieve this. And Colossians is written to address that very thing. Paul's answer in Colossians is very simple. Church, Jesus Christ is everything. Jesus Christ is everything. His answer in Colossians is, in Jesus Christ, you've already been given all things. You can't add to him. You can't add to him. He's everything. In Jesus Christ, all things have already been taken care of for you. Consider that for a moment. In Jesus Christ, your life has already been taken care of. You can't add to what Jesus has done. Paul's answer in Colossians is that if you know Jesus, you are absolutely secure because he is everything and he has already done all things for you. His answer to the church at Colossians is don't lose track of that. Jesus is supreme and he's done all things for you. And so then what does it mean to live as a Christian? It means to live in accordance with what's already true rather than to live as if it's not true. We spend most of our lives living as if we need to make ourselves okay. 
And Paul says in Colossians, no. Live as if you're already okay. We spend most of our lives trying to prove that we ought to be loved. And Paul says in Colossians, live as if you are already loved. Because you are already loved in Christ. We spend most of our lives saying, what can I acquire so that I'm secure? And he says in Colossians, live with the reality that you are already secure. You are already secure in Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful book. It's a beautiful book. At the end, when he boils down what it means to live as a Christian, the answer is actually really simple. Because Jesus has done everything for you, because you are secure in him, to be in Christ means to live a life of faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. It's what he boils it all down to. Faith, cling to what Jesus did. Cling to what Jesus did, not what you're going to accomplish. Let what Jesus did be enough for you. Hope, bank on his promises. Bank on his promises. And love, live as if the kingdom of God is already here in our midst. Faith, cling to what he did. Hope, bank on his promises. And love, live as if the kingdom of God is already here in our midst. This is the answer that Paul gives the Colossians. Jesus is everything. And so the Christian life is not a life of self-discipline and approval and seeking to obey to get God's favor. Instead, it's faith, hope, and love. Cling to him. Bank on his promises and live as if the kingdom of God is already here. This is the way he begins the letter. Listen to these verses in verse 3, 4, and 5. He says, we always thank God. He's telling them why he's thankful for this church. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that you have in heaven. That's it. This is his thanksgiving for the church, and it's the thing that he doesn't want them to lose. You have hope stored up for you in heaven, and because that hope is stored up for you in heaven, faith and love are springing forth in your lives. He reminds them that that hope came from the gospel. He goes on to tell them the gospel came to you through the ministry of Epaphras, and it's going throughout the whole world in the same way it came to you, and it's bearing fruit, and it's increasing. And it was the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that gave you hope. And that hope is giving you faith. And that hope is giving you love. And this is my thanksgiving for you. And this is the thing that I don't want you to lose. He goes on in verse 9 to pray one of those beautiful prayers. He says, and so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will. He wants them to be filled with the understanding of what God wants. What does God want? He goes on to say, that you would dwell in Jesus Christ. It's not some complicated hidden thing that you would dwell in Jesus Christ. And he prays that they would be filled with the knowledge of that will. And he prays that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him, bearing fruit. What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy to Jesus? It's not to do enough to get his approval. It's to walk in faith, hope, and love. It's what he keeps returning to. Walk in faith, walk in hope, walk in love. And then he prays in verse 11 that they would be strengthened with power so that they could endure and be patient with joy. Life is hard. And he says, I pray that God would strengthen you so that you can endure with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, 
the forgiveness of sin. I want to linger for a moment today, and I won't spend an hour and a half, don't worry. But I want to linger for a moment today with that thing that's at the heart of this opening thanksgiving and prayer, where he begins. Because he says at the beginning that he's thankful because he heard of the faith that they have in Jesus Christ, the love they have for all the saints, because of the hope that's laid out for them. And that idea of love that's because of hope is one of those things that I think we need to stop and hold on to for just a moment. Love because of hope. It's like a little stained glass window into the heart of the gospel. Love that springs from hope. And y'all may hear that and go, what's the big deal? What's the point of love that springs from hope? What's so interesting about that? I think we actually sometimes forget where love comes from and forget what love is. We all know that love is giving up yourself. It's emptying yourself on behalf of someone else. And we all know that it's actually terrifying to empty yourself, to give up yourself. Because there's always the chance that if you give up yourself, well, you'll be empty afterwards. You'll be destroyed afterwards. We feel it acutely with money. If someone were to ask you for a great deal of money, not just a little bit that you can give on the side, but enough that it might exhaust your bank account, the fear would be, but then I'll have nothing left over. All love is like this, where if I say your needs are more important than my own, there's that lingering question, who's going to take care of my needs? Who's going to watch out for me? If I give myself up for them, well, who's going to be giving themselves up for me? You see, love, in order for us to actually engage in it, needs hope at its root. There needs to be a hope that someone will show up and take care of me if I extend myself for others. Christian love always springs from hope. There's a sort of love that exists in the world, a love that's in the midst of despair and fear, where we genuinely believe nothing will come of it, that we as a martyr sacrifice ourselves for somebody else. And that love might be noble when someone believes that something will end in tragedy and despair, yet still gives themselves up. That might be noble, but it's not Christian. Christian love always believes that God will show up. Christian love always believes that God will have our back, that God will fill us, that he will take care of our needs. Christian love always springs from hope because Christian love believes that God will come to meet us when we empty ourselves. As John says, perfect love casts out fear. Selfishness and fear are tied together. If we're afraid that no one will give to us and do for us, we become selfish. But it's in hope when we assume somebody else will take care of us that we're set free to love. Paul's talking about Christian love when he says, I rejoice to hear of the love that you have because of the hope that's laid up for you in heaven. I want to linger on this because I think that we need to hear something hard. We all have moments where we fail to love, right? We have moments when selfishness takes over, when we would rather get our own way, when we don't want to listen to somebody else. We have moments when we talk about somebody behind their back, when we are critical and we hurt other people. We have moments where we are anything but loving. And every single one of those moments reveals that we have a failure of hope. Every single one of those moments reveals the fear 
within us. Because every single one of those moments is like a little trap door that where we see the dark part of ourselves that says, I don't believe God's actually going to take care of me in this way. So I've got to take care of myself. I'm going to take care of myself by getting something from somebody else. Selfishness springs from fear, from anxiety, from despair. That sort of examination where we look at ourselves, where we say, Lord, where am I failing to love? And then we look at those moments and we say, what am I afraid of? Why am I afraid that you won't show up there? Why am I afraid that you won't actually come to my assistance? Why am I afraid that you won't protect me in this situation? That sort of examination is something that we need to do from time to time. Because that failure to love reveals a place in us, if we're willing to look at it, it reveals a place in us where we don't actually believe the gospel, where we don't believe that Jesus is actually enough. That failure to love reveals those sort of places where we think that unless I get my way, I won't have enough. Unless I get my way, life will not be worth living. Unless I get my way, Jesus is not enough. It's our failure to love that reveals the places where we have no hope. And the places where we have no hope reveal the places where we actually don't trust that Jesus is enough. This is why in this letter that's all about do you believe that Jesus is enough, Paul starts with faith, hope, and love. Do you actually believe that Jesus will show up on your behalf? Do you believe that he will? Because when you actually realize that he will show up for me, he will take care of me, it sets us free to love the people around us. When we see the places we're not loving each other, our first instinct shouldn't be to sort of beat ourselves and try to work harder to love them. Our first instinct should be to say, Lord, where am I not believing that you'll show up for me? Where am I not secure? Where am I still fighting to get my own because I don't believe that you'll actually show up on my behalf? Somebody who's utterly confident that Jesus will show up on their behalf doesn't struggle to love. Because honestly, anything I can get for myself pales in comparison to what he's going to give me. It pales in comparison. Whatever accolades I get, whatever respect I get, whatever pleasure I get, whatever money I get, whatever I get in this life by securing it by the power of my own hands and my own brain, that pales in comparison to the fact that he says, look, I'll freely give you all things. Paul says to the Corinthians, if you have Christ, all things are yours. All things are yours. All things are yours. I want to linger on this as we close because I think we need to remember the hope that we actually have. I think we need to remember what's actually offered to us because it's so easy to slip into the living life as if no hope is offered to us and the only thing that's going to come our way is what we get for ourselves. Linger for a few moments on the hope that's already been offered to you. Paul closes his prayer. This is verses 12, 13, and 14. He closes his prayer by giving a brief summary of what has already been done for you. He's going to go on later in the letter and talk about this at great length, but he closes this particular prayer by saying that the Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. Words that we speed by. Stop for a moment. He's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. The one who made this earth and owns all things, possesses all things, who rules over the kingdom of heaven, 
the great high king of all, the Lord, the God, the almighty, has said to you, would you like to be in my family and have a part of the inheritance? He said to you, would you like to rule over a portion of my creation? I'm not making that part up. We're told that we will reign with him. He said to you, come into the king's family. You get to rule and watch over and guard and take care of a portion of what I've created, a portion of what he's created. We are called into his activity of shepherding and guarding it. What is our little dominion at work in comparison to that inheritance? That inheritance can't be taken away from you. You can't lose it. Bad men can't take that one from you. You've been offered an inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. This is what's offered to you freely. He goes on to say he's delivered us from the domain of darkness. The domain of darkness might be the perfect description of what life on earth is like so oftentimes. We are a race that is intent on destroying one another through wars and other evils. The domain of darkness. And he says you are delivered from it. Nothing that happens on this earth can destroy you. Nothing that happens on this earth can take you away from the Father. Nothing that happens on the earth is the final word because no matter the darkness that occurs here, the darkness is done and you are no longer under its domain. Nothing that occurs to you, no evil, no pain, no hardship is the final word. You've been delivered from the domain of darkness. He says you've been transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son. This is no longer our home. Our home is the kingdom of the beloved son. This is where our true residence is. This is what no one on earth can take away from you. The beloved son, he says, in whom we have redemption. Redemption is the word when you would buy back somebody who's being sold into slavery. You've been bought back from the brink of slavery. You've been set free. And he says, and in whom we have the forgiveness of sins. All that you've done that's wrong has been washed away. All that you will do that is wrong will be washed away. In him you have the forgiveness of sins. Church, this is our hope. We are no longer citizens of this world. We are children of the kingdom with our sins forgiven, set free, given an inheritance that can't be taken away. There is nothing that can be added to that. And because you have all things waiting for you, you're set free to love those around you. So my encouragement to you all this morning when you see those failures of love, don't beat yourself for failing to love. I mean, there's a certain sense where we do need to confess that. But instead say, Lord, reveal to me where am I failing to hope? Because when you see clearly who you are in the king's eyes, the love naturally flows. We need to see clearly who we are in the king's eyes. Amen.